Welcome to the Tech in Shanghai podcast, the Pearl of the Orient. Shanghai is the city of the future. All systems go full steam ahead. It never stops. Technology, innovation, ambition. It's everywhere. Join us as we explore this new world and talk to the people making it happen. The Tech in Shanghai podcast. The future is now. All right, we are back with the Tech in Shanghai podcast, the show bringing you everything tech and Shanghai from the great city or tech and、uh, startup from the great city of Shanghai. I'm your host John Vallis, and today we are joined by two very special guests. We've got Ben du- Duval,、uh, the、uh, CEO of Wildfire Asia, and his CTO、uh, Lu Kai. So, just before we get going, last week we had on、uh, Todd Embley and Michael Young of Agata, recent graduate of the China Accelerator program. If you're interested in potentially applying for that program or hearing more information about what they're doing and、uh, how they're impacting the community here, then certainly check out that.、Um, so, guys, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank、Hi. you so much for inviting us here today. So, let's get the ball rolling first. Why don't you,、uh, Ben? Why don't you give us a rundown of Wildfire Asia for the people that maybe have no、uh, have have not had any exposure to you guys before? Just tell us、uh, what you do, who you do it for, and、uh, and and that story. Sure. So、uh, Wildfire was set up about five and a half years ago, and the、um, the goal of the company is to manage influence for brands,、uh, and we do that in two ways:、uh, one through、uh, social listening or social media monitoring, some people call it, which is basically massive collection of data and making sense of data, social data for brands,、uh, for consumer research, market research, performance tracking, and the other piece of the business is changing conversations. So we use the same technology. Uh, with a different process to、uh, find influential people online,、mm-hmm. everyday people like you and me. These are not KOLs or、uh, webmasters who are going to be paid to delete or paid to post. Normal people、uh, who experience products and share their experiences、mm-hmm. with others. So it's the combination of being able to un- understand conversations and then being able to actually change them in a non-sleazy way. Right. Now we we spoke a little bit before the show, and you, you kind of gave us a bit of a history of Wildfire and and. I said to you, it's kind of like、uh, leveraging technology to bridge the online and offline worlds as、mm-hmm. far as promoting brands and, and products and such. Now, one of the things that stands out, you know, we've had some companies on here before. We had KWO on here, and we had、um, a, a few other in the social media space, or at least interacting with that.、Um, and it's always interesting because in China, it's such a dynamic market, and it's such, you know, there may be a lot of hurdles in the market. Social media is tightly controlled here. We all know that we don't have access to, you know, a lot of the Western social media brands. So, do you guys focus primarily on working with、uh, one of the social media brands in China, you know, one of the social media services? Um, as far as so, I, I think there's a couple different ways to interpret that.、Um, as far as platforms are concerned, like Weibo or Weixin、mm-hmm. or Douban or any of these platforms, we're completely agnostic. So, what we do is independent of any of these platforms. We do have great relationships with、uh, Liu Kai, for example, has a great relationship with、um, the team over at Weibo,、um, but、um, we are independent of any of those platforms.、Right. So, as far as bringing insights or creating conversations. Uh, it has more to do about people、mm-hmm. than platforms.、Um, as far as brands,、um, we work with.、Uh, we have, I guess, probably thirty or thirty-five anchor clients right now.、Um, we work with some of the big、uh, advertising networks,、mm-hmm. um, creative、uh, media agencies, PR agencies.、Um, so it's it's really across the board. Right. 
Now, before, you know, just, just to make sure everyone's clear, everyone who's listening, what exactly Wildfire does, can you maybe break down an example case? You know, if I'm a client that wants to work with Wildfire, what do you deliver to us in terms of whether it's generating greater brand awareness or getting more people to trial, trial our products? You know, can you, can you give us a case study? Yeah, for sure. So our tagline is insight to influence, which kind of speaks back to what I was, the, the process I was talking about before. Um, and there is this huge precedent uh, over the last 10 years of brands trying to figure out how do I, how do I create a distinct voice which consumers can trust? Mm-hmm. And um, if, not to bore everyone, but if you go back, you know, let's, let's go back 7,500 years, we've gone through an evolution of media being very powerful t- t- and being trusted, television, media, radio, to being less powerful, less trusted, but still demanding the, the lion's share of the budgets by far. Mm-hmm. And in the last uh, 10 years or so, really content has come forward. And, and brands are struggling with, how do I cut through this clutter of content? How do I get over this deficit of attention because everyone has multiple devices and they're just getting pounded with stuff? And because um, everyone is potentially a content provider now, right? So exactly. there's just so much independent yes. content in yes. addition to that traditional content that's out there. Yeah, that's yeah. an excellent point. So mm-hmm. now everyone is a publisher. Right. Um, and that has given consumers a lot of power. Um, so, so to go back to the case study, um, I'll give you an example of a cosmetics brand we worked with recently. Uh, this was um, uh, more of a local Chinese cosmetics brand, um, and they were really trying to figure out, you know, we've, we've had the same market share for so long. How do we, how do we increase that, um, and how do we kind of grow out of this perception of someone who's just kind of an everyday, uh, inexpensive brand? Mm-hmm. Um, and they didn't have a lot of money to invest, so rather than paying... You know, uh, Nielsen or one of the big research houses, a couple million renminbi to do, you know, the uh, kind of the the home visits and the shop-alongs and the focus groups. Um, what we were able to do is give them a a scan of all the conversations about their brand, and for them to understand when people talk about this brand, what is really driving engagement mm-hmm. uh, across topics. Um, and they noticed that there's a couple qualities that they hadn't been emphasizing at all that people were starting to talk about, and on our platform, they can pick that up in you know 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. So we have automated topic and sentiment analysis on a beautiful dashboard um, uh, that Leo's Ka- Leo Kai's team has put together, and they can immediately see you know this these red flashing areas uh, around topics right. that have a high level of engagement that are high positive sentiment. Now, if um, I could just interrupt you for one sec, sure. I wanted to to ask that question. So social listening is, I guess, what you guys call that process, right? That That's initial right. aspect of getting that data on what your potential or prospective customers are saying and your existing customers. Now, that seems like to me, it's your world, Luca. It's like a, you know, it's an algorithmic sort of thing that you work long and hard on and then, you know, just just let it run because it seems to be that there's obviously so much content. There's billions of conversations happening daily. I mean, what can you you know, explain a little bit about how you guys do that and what that process is like, you know, to listen to so many things and how you capture the the information that you're you're looking for? So the first thing, it's not totally a technical thing. So mm-hmm. it's a two parts. Uh, the algorithm and the technical part definitely helps. It make it more fast, more real-time, uh, more accurate. But another important thing is what's the result outcome you want? Uh, so we have a very strong research team, have a uh, uh, very long time research background in China, understand what the inside the kind wants. I think that's perhaps more important than technology itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
for now, building this kind of technology is not as hard as like, uh, five or 10 years ago. So mm-hmm. we have a lot of helps. We have recently have uh, uh, what do we call NoSQL database. We have cloud computing. You used to need to buy uh, 40 or 100 servers and put it into a room. Now you just click Amazon service. You just um, flash your credit card and then that's done. Right. And um, the thing is also very public. So most of um, Ben just mentioned the sentiment analysis. We do automatic sentiment detection in Chinese, mm-hmm. which is very unique. So the approach itself is very simple. It's a machine learning thing. So it's a what? Sorry. It's a machine learning. Okay. So basically, you teach machine what is positive, what is negative, mm-hmm. and when you teach it, so many times, a thousand times, a hundred thousand times, it learns. Mm-hmm. It know how to detect sentiment, um, positive and uh, negative sentiments. Um, the algorithm itself is totally public. It's no secret. Right. The secret is the training data, mm-hmm. which we have very strong data team behind it. Mm-hmm. So everything combined together, it's going to be a working product. Right. So to, so to make that social listening effective, to do that, you train you know the computers that you're working with, the machines you're working with, to extract the data that you're looking for, and then you have a, a separate team and a separate you know, a function to analyze and interpret that data to see, you know, to find the trends that you guys are looking for and that, you know, presumably you'd pass on to your clients. Is that, yeah. is that right? Yeah, yeah, it's actually, it's even more interesting than that because I, I would refer to that as kind of what people have been doing for the last couple of years. Right. Um, the guy who heads up our research team now, who who's brilliant, he's been in the market for about 25 years, mm-hmm. we gave him a very simple task, which was when you've worked for this big research house that you worked for, or one of them, um, the kind of charts and insights that you would deliver after doing a month project, we want to have an automated chart to do exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. So he's actually put together, we have four or five different uh, visualizations where you can see things that uh, would have taken a lot of manual analysis um, in the past, but now are automated. Right. So in a sense, we're trying to get him to work his way out of his own job. Right. right? So we, we don't want to um, have clients who have to wait three months for a manual report, and we have to go and present them. Sure. And before, before long, the time has already passed, you've moved on to the next thing. So. Um, and I mean, yep. time is money with things moving so fast these days. I mean, you, uh, you got to yeah. deliver a service like that. Now, I'm going to let you finish off the case study, but I just want it before it slips out of my mind. You mentioned that now to set up, uh, you know, an analytical component like uh, like you're using for the social listening, whereas before you might have had to have a full room of servers and all the infrastructure required to do that. Now the the kind of exterior infrastructure is in place and it's much more easy to access. Does that, I mean, does does that mean that your your competitors can more uh, is there more copying in the market? Is it is it easier for them to kind of nip at your heels as a result of that? And um, if and if so, how do you guys kind of keep them at bay? I wouldn't say so. It's more like um, the utilities for the world everybody can use. Mm-hmm. We never say because there's uh, cars or guns, so other people can win us. So it's a soldier wins <laughs> the war right. eventually. So I think our Ben knows better. Our competitive point, our selling point, is not on how to manage the service. Mm-hmm. It's because sure. we are experienced in influencer marketing, we're experienced in how to find the insight in right. large data. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So we, we, you, you do the social listening, and then what's the, okay. what's the next step after that? So we'll go back to the, like, uh, you know, the, this product yeah. that we've been talking about before. So now we understand 
why are people engaging? When they talk about this product, what do they care about? We, can, we have the same um, understanding for the competitors. So it could, it could be anything. It could be, it doesn't matter whether um, it's snake oil, uh, the, the, you know, whether the, the claims are false or true, or, you know, there's consumers talking about stuff out there. Right. And we can understand through the volume of the conversations, what type of responses they get, the sentiment of the responses, how frequently they respond, what is getting them interested. Right. I mean, you can create a benchmark for your competitors as well. So back to the cosmetics brand. At that point, we understand, okay, there's this feature. And let's say uh, now we found out that a lot of people are talking about oil control. So people don't want to go out and buy this premium product. They're buying this one, and they're saying this is really good for oily skin. The brand doesn't know that. They've just figured that out in five minutes by looking at our platform. Right. That's, that's pretty cool. Powerful, yeah. Um, the next step is how do we change those conversations? Um, uh, we can do it through advertising. So we can put out some banner ads that say, this is great for oil control. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, video pre-rolls. Uh, we can do search engine marketing. We can pay uh, webmasters to put some content out there. We can pay celebrity bloggers. The Which are kind of broad-based efforts, right? You're not yeah. really nailing things down. You're kind of just throwing it at the wall and seeing what sticks and trying to hit as many people within an even broader category as you can, right? That's right. Yeah. So this is all broadcast marketing. This generates awareness. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really generate a high level of affinity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and consumers respond differently to different types of media. So uh, we know from our own research that if you have a KOL who, who blasts something out, they're kind of perceiving that more as an editorial rather than a buddy saying, hey, you should really try this. So, so what we do after that is actually very simple, um, and, and the rest of the case study is very short. We, we've identified this topic that's really important to consumers. We use our technology to look at the social graph of all the, the consumers who are using Weibo accounts and other accounts and other forums, and we find out which consumers are, are creating the most volume of conversations and con- content mm-hmm. around those. Then we reach out to them, one basically one-on-one. We may invite 1,000 or 2,000. Uh, we give them an experience with the new product, and we say, you know, is this good for oil control? Tell us what you think. So we have a, we have a, a website, which is called Xing Xing Huo, uh, online, which comes from the Mao Zedong expression, Xing Xing Zhuo Kui Liao Yuan. Now we're turning into a China pod. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, and so that expression like, for, the, for the listeners exactly. and myself means what? Yeah. So even a small f- uh, spark can create a great fire. Okay. Um, so they go to this website, and it's a community of Chinese experts who are mostly moms, uh, mostly women, uh, white collars, who try products, and they help their friends and colleagues out with mm-hmm. sharing their experience. Mm-hmm. So what this platform does is they've tried the product, um, they share their experience, and our platform will automatically post it back to those forums where the conversation was originally happening, to Weibo, they can do reviews, uh, and it amplifies their content based on a real experience. Right. So back to the case study, for this brand, we generated about 4,000 pieces of real content, videos, photographs, stories, all around this issue of this is really affordable oil control. And finally, like I have a product that I, I didn't think I could afford. It's really, it has a very high level of efficacy for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're, do, using our, our social listening platform, we can track how effective that content is. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very strong alternative for brands, um, even those who can compete in the media arms race, to create honest and trusted content, mm. which is going to have a real impact on consumer uh, attitudes and uh, and behaviors as well. Yeah. Either trying the product or going to the website to research it or telling their friends. Yeah, it's a really interesting process. So it's kind of like one, each builds on the other, right? So the, 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 
platform, the team, the software that you use to track, to, you know, to do, do the social listening, that identifies for you not only the topics and discussions, but also the people that are kind of the, mo you know, the focal points of these discussions, right? Your influencers. Yeah, you got it. So you identify them that way, and then you reach out to them to you know, partner up with Wildfire in some capacity, right? That's right. And then yeah. you know, when, when, when brands approach you or when you guys are working with brands that are looking at uh, promoting something, introducing something to the market, you go to the aspect, the area of your influencer network, the influencers you guys have in your network that are, have identified themselves as being associated with that industry or market segment or whatever. You educate them, you send them samples, you, you know, various different methods, methods I'm sure. And then through their social media networks, they hopefully promote the brands that you send them. What happens if, if they're not, ha you know, if they have negative things to say about a brand that you're working with? Do you yeah. kind of just push push them to the side and not promote them? Or? We just call up the webmasters and have them delete those posts. Right. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. Um, that would be nice. <laughs> I mean, we, we've been doing this for a while, and um, this is actually based on a process that, that was um, put together by a company called BuzzAgent back in the U.S., mm -hmm. BZZAGNT, which was uh, eventually acquired by Tesco. Uh, the first uh, social market came to be acquired by a uh, retailer, right. which is really interesting. Mm. Um Anyway, a uh, bit of a bit of, bit of a tangent, but the the way it works is if you give someone, it, so we recruit them based on they have to like the product, they have to be influential, and have to be in the right demographic. Mm -hmm. If you have someone who is doesn't like packaged food products, we're not going to recruit that person. Right. Survey them. The first thing they do is they have a review. So they review the product. Obviously, that review goes to the Weibo account wherever they post it. We don't we don't filter that in any way, shape, or form. If that review is negative, and um, it can either be because they've had a bad experience with a feature or they didn't fulfill their expectations or there, maybe there's even an allergic reaction or something. Mm -hmm. All that information goes to the client in a dashboard so they can see all those as insights. Uh, and that's very useful yeah, for, yeah. for many reasons. But what we also do is we will take that person and say that person is no longer really an advocate. Um, and that person becomes more of their part of their normal CRM database for the client. So right. Uh, they continue to contact that person, but they don't engage with that person as an advocate for the brand anymore. Right. So on our platform, that person would not receive the opportunity to try new content for the brand. They wouldn't be able to amplify that. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the whole experience is a game for them. So they right. earn points and badges, and that allows them to try new products in the future. Yeah. So in that case, um, you know, we would say, yeah, we want to have your honest opinion. We still give you points for it. Um, but we would just would not engage them for that brand anymore. Right. So how you identify your influencer network and then how you curate it moving forward based on experience and results is hugely a huge important hugely important aspect of your business, right? Because yeah, they yeah, are the guys yeah. that are that you're relying on to do the work for the brands you're working with, right? Absolutely. And the fact that there is some negative buzz and and there always is mm -hmm. is testament to the fact that it's honest. Yeah. And if the, if the content's not trusted. If it's perceived as someone just posting a, a discount voucher and expecting their friends to redeem it, mm -hmm. they're perceived as a sellout. Yeah. So it's good for everyone to realize that this is a place where it's this is an honest experience. Yeah. And it, it, we're not just paying people to to sell stuff to their friends. Right. And I mean, it's it seems like a, and I want to get into the sales process in a second, but it seems like a really a really strong uh, proposition because we, we all know. Let's take samples for example. We all know we, we've all received samples in the past, whether it's conditioner or hairspray or what, whatever it is in the mail and it would usually go in the garbage or you know you'd give it a sniff and leave it because it, it's such a, a broad approach to 
samples in this particular case, whereby you know, a company is sending out 10 million samples and hoping that the people that actually like it will engage in it and then maybe promote it or buy it or whatever. Whereas, again, the, the technology you guys are leveraging and the process you guys are using is really, really narrowing down that, that focus so that the companies and brands you work with can be can rest not rest assured, but can be a lot more confident that they're really hitting the people that they want to be hitting and that they're going to get good traction with, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's a very, very astute observation. And so one of the budgets that we do play into is the sampling budget. Mm-hmm. It may not be a media budget or a social budget all the time. Sometimes brands have a, a very small bullseye in their target audience that they want to focus on. Mm-hmm. And there's too much wastage for just doing field sampling or store sampling um, uh, using promoters. Yeah. And especially in China, where there are a lot of consumers in those channels who just want value and they don't really care. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have uh, grannies coming in and trying samples of whiskey just because it's a it's a <laughs> it's a free product. But those are not that's not the the customer that uh, that Perno or Diageo or Fortune wants wants to target. Right. right. They 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 want the young white collar woman who's going to bring her friends over and try Bailey's and feel like it's a special experience. Um, so uh, that, that's just one example. So there's a massive amount of wastage and, and spillover in other right. forms of media, and the targeting is very important. Yeah. yeah. Now, is your service more oriented towards kind of uh, you know mid-price consumables, um, or can you leverage the the system and platform you have in place to work with luxury, you know, BMW luxury items like cars and and, and such things like that, yeah. or is it is it mostly within a, a certain price range and, and type of good? It's it's really across the board. Um, the model becomes a bit more challenging with luxury or right. with services because delivering that experience, which is fundamental to have make someone an advocate, they have to be able to talk about the product. Right. You can't send um, everyone a BMW, for example. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but you can um, invite people to test drive a BMW. Mm-hmm. Um, you can give them other forms of value, like exclusivity. Mm-hmm. So you could do a pre-release of a BMW. So we have uh, we have two clients, which are auto companies right now. And recruiting someone who is... Uh, you know, a wealthy consumer, older consumer, um, and and looking at a, a product which is uh, less of an impulse purchase, but the, the decision cycle is very long and has a lot of touch points. Um, it's very difficult to to attribute, say, oh, we drove sales for that, right? Um, because it was a it was a very long process by which they made the decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but it works, and um, and and especially I, I think in categories like automotive. Um, there's a lot in, in, in alcohol, which there's, it's also a luxury brand. Um, there's a lot of luxury brands in alcohol. There's, there's a lack of differentiation, lack of education in the Chinese market um, because these brands have a huge heritage overseas, which they don't have in China. So you have to get consumers to educate each other because they're used to just being blanketed with... I mean, you ha- have a lot of instant brands. Like if you go walk down Plaza 66, there's a couple brands there that are don't exist in the West. They were just pop-up luxury brands. And, right. and consumers are wary of those type of things. So they want to feel like they're buying something authentic that has heritage in the story. And the best way to communicate that is from a friend. However, it's a bit more challenging for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means just that uh, there's a different price point for, for the service. Right. Um, but yeah, it works across, you know, we have clients who have been credit card companies, hotels, uh, education, uh, universities. Mm-hmm. Um, Government. <laughs> including governments. I wasn't going to mention that one. <laughs> yes, they like to listen uh, uh, occasionally on certain conversations. Um, um, yes, yes. But w- one of the things I wanted to ask, I mean, do you do you guys primarily work with, uh, like directly with the, the brands you're working with or through agencies? Because obviously the, the service you guys provide allows for 
probably an uncanny degree of of data off the back of a of a pro an initiative that you guys start because of course traditional media you get the sales pitch they tell you this is how many people we're going to reach and they you know typically let's be honest at, at the end of a campaign the numbers are pretty much pretty fudged you know like this is how much we've increased your sales based on this and you go to all the agencies and they're always more than happy to tell you you know what kind of impact this is going to have on your company but it's pretty loose. I mean, those those metrics are really hard to really nail down. But with something like you guys provide, I mean, it seems like, I mean, you go right to the source, and and it's potentially a lot easier to provide hard data uh, to your to your clients as a result of campaigns. I mean, is is that right? And if so, you know, what, what has the response been? It seems like it's a pretty power, powerful proposition. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the great thing about the internet is it, it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, TV. You're blasting, and then you're following up with surveys, right? So you have the Nielsen um, trackers to uh, to figure out what the reach and the penetration was, and it's all claimed. Mm-hmm. With the internet, you can you can track too. I mean, it, it's imperfect, but you have a, a much higher level of certainty as far as reach, um, as far as. Uh, and, and in fact, there's there's three types of KPIs, yeah, that are so social ROI. The idea that you can't the social ROI is elusive is is, is really um, I think it's something that has been going on too long because it's just very easy for social agencies to just sell fans, likes, and followers. Um, but we measure uh, um, KPIs in terms of reach, how many people were reached, and we can pull that information specifically from our tool. What was the impact on brand equity metrics like attitude? So mm-hmm. we will do a follow-up survey, and we will uh, do social listening to find out like how much more likely are people to buy? Do they recall the messages? Um, what's their affinity? What is their... Uh, there's a whole bunch of brand equity metrics that we follow. And the third is conversion. Right. If you have an influencer and we give them some exclusive discount that they only they can share with their friends, we can actually track the conversion to a website or to a retail environment. So the ROI on this is, is very strong mm-hmm. relative to television. Um, but... It's it's a but it's also a new way of of selling things. So the education, especially educating brands, agencies are more forward thinking. But mm-hmm. educating brands, especially local brands, is very difficult. And do you is there a kind of split? How often you guys work with agencies versus brands directly? It's about thirty seventy agencies. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, now on your website it says you've got about a hundred thousand influencers to draw. Now I presume that's your total basket in across all industries, across all markets, all that. Is that is that right? More or less accurate? Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit, Leo Kai? <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> you right. will answer this question. <laughs> so um, this whole the whole to be honest, my personal opinion, although this is an easy thing to sell, mm-hmm. especially when you don't have a lot of time to educate the client, is the size of a network because people can understand a database. Right. And it's, it's basically a media network. If you can put your message in the hands of someone who's going to broadcast it for you, then it's, it's an easy proposition. It's something easy to explain. But in fact, it doesn't really work that way. Um, the way it works is you have a client who wants to go have a very specific uh, target audience, and usually the best influencers are previous customers or people in, in that client's database. Mm-hmm. So um, the network is very important if you want to move quickly, if you want to... Uh, if, if, you know, we have, for example, recently, probably in the last couple of months, we've had five or 6,000 moms that have tried products for three or four different brands. It's very easy to go to them and give them another product. But if we're going to do something um, for, um, for example, we'll go back to auto, and they have a database of uh, people who visit their stores, um, who have had an experience, and we can draw from that database 
um, and then find those people who have accounts where they have a certain amount of followers, who are genuine followers and not bots or zombies, who are creating great content, highly engaged. Those are the people that we want to bring back in. Right. So really, I, I think the powerful thing, which um, we'll be evolving into over the next year or so, is more of a an influencer CRM or an influencer um, uh, management system mm-hmm. rather than you buying a media. Right. So you'll have software. It'll tell you who the influencers are. You can shoot a survey out to your database. You can pick out those people who are really, really influential, and you can treat them in a special way. Right. Not everyone in you, not all of your customers should be treated the same. Right. Um, now you you mentioned you engage them in in games and uh, badges or something. I mean, how do yeah. you how do you maintain your network of influencers? Why you know apart from getting free stuff occasionally, why do they yeah work with you guys? Yeah, that's that's a terrific um, question because. Other influencer marketing companies, there's a couple big ones in the States, basically you just get free stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you just you kind of throw up your experience onto your Facebook account and hopefully some of your friends will be at the right time in their life where they want to buy that product. Right. Um, the, the way we do it is we, we tell consumers that they're helping other people. So that it works very well for uh, the demographic, the female, uh, white collar and mom demographic. Um, because there's a lot of concern around safety, both of products, uh, both of packaged foods and, uh, uh, and other consumer goods that are not consumables. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, child's toys and things like that. Um, and there's a high amount of uh, responsibility that, um, that these influencers, the experts, feel for their peers. Mm-hmm. So they can actually go on and sit in the train in the morning, see a bunch of other questions other moms are asking, um, answer them, earn some points, Maybe a badge for uh, for for being a, kind of like a infant milk formula expert, mm-hmm. um, and then and then later maybe they'll be able to trade those points in for something. So there's there's this feeling that they're providing value, they're providing social value, and they're also getting some not just in terms of monetary, but feeling uh, that uh, they're exclusive and there's some social capital. Right. Um, now you say so later they might be able to trade those points. Is that something that you guys are planning, or that it is actually ongoing? Um, no, so later in the day. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. So, so she, for example, she earns 500 points over the course of uh, an hour when she's uh, on, her, on her subway waiting for uh, to arrive at the office. Later in the day, um, something pops up on the platform. Maybe she gets an alert via QQ, and it says, um, yeah, Barilla, for example, the pasta company. Um, we know that you love cooking and want you to try pasta. You can, you can get a full value. It's not a sample. It's a full value pack for 500 points. You don't have to pay anything. Mm-hmm. She gets it in the mail, and then it's a virtuous cycle. Right. So she tries that product, and she shares uh, the experience with other moms who are saying, yeah, man, like uh, Chinese pasta, it takes me three seconds to cook it. I don't know how to cook Italian pasta. I've cooked it three seconds. It's still really hard. I can't eat it. And she can educate them on how you properly cook pasta. Right. And uh, if she's a, if she's a foodie, that's something that she'll she'll like. If she's not a foodie, she won't be invited to that project. Sure. So um, I've actually completely forgotten what your question was, but <laughs> <laughs> but but the idea is is that there is a virtuous cycle, right. and she's not getting money for it. Yeah. And if she were getting money, then she would be a. Uh, multi-level marketer. She wouldn't be right. just an expert yeah. helping her, her friends. I think I forgot precisely what it was, too. It was something about how do you retain or your influencer <laughs> yeah. network and how do you kind of give back to them? Why do they engage with you guys? Yeah. Um, but with, with that network, I mean, is there a lot of... Do you have, like, a, a really busy customer service department to maintain that network? Do you get a lot of feedback from the influencers? Like, uh, this gave me an... Al- I had an allergic reaction or I didn't like this or... 
Is there a lot of that, or is it mitigated in some way? I mean, is that a, a, an issue for you guys? Yeah, there, so we have a team who's responsible. So we call it the Influencer Network Team. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a, a, a great network director, Alexia, um, who is very, very proactive. Um, and so, you know, when we have those experiences that come back, we actually respond to them. Um, and there's a fine line be- between being the customer support team for our client. We don't want to be that. Right. So if they say that well, you have a problem, problem then, we, then we'll say y- y- you need to contact the client or whatever. However, you know, we'll also help you to pass on this information. Right. Um, and actually, we don't get a lot of, uh, there's very, very few complaints um, or even ne- negative experiences. Most of it is like, when is there going to be another campaign for me? When can, I, when can I get a new product? Right. Or I've been trying really hard to get this and my friend hasn't been able to be a part of that. So why is that? Um, it's that kind of stuff. Right. Um, now, I've asked, like I said, we've had some guests in here that are all that do some work and have companies in the kind of social media space. And of course, we're all operating here in China. You know, we, we were talking about the social listening aspect, and a lot of people will, you know, the word privacy will pop up into their mind when, when we talk about that stuff. Now, of course, all the data that you're drawing from is public data and, and all that stuff, so it's not invasive. But I think people more and more are aware of how technology is listening to the things that they might be engaging in. And before we get into it kind of on a company level, what what's your both of you guys, what's your personal take? And I can share share mine as well. In this age of technology where, I mean, let's say 15 years ago, you know, people would be apprehensive about, or very apprehensive about buying something online and putting their credit card, but certainly, you know, their address or their phone number. And these days, you know, on, on people's Facebook page, you have where they're eating at this very moment. Of course, you have all their personal data, you have their email address, their address, who their friends are, where they went to high school, and pretty much everything else. And you know, so so information, you know, people have really put themselves out there. And it seems like that's the trend. I mean, it seems like you just kind of have to throw up your hands and say, my life is no longer as private as it once could have been, unless I completely disengage, which has its own negative side effects. <laughs> so, you know, I just had to accept that in the, in, the, in the 21st century, in the dynamic that we're currently in, I have, you know, my life is shared to some degree. What is your guys' take on uh, on uh, privacy? Perhaps, Lukai, we go with you first. So, my personal feeling is also like a frightened, um, freaked out. Sometimes, sometimes I Google for traveling to Thailand, for example, and I go to Taobao and the other website. They starting pop up Thailand's advertisement in like two seconds. Mm-hmm. It really freaks me out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think um, as an entrepreneur. As a company, uh, you know, we talk about our personal feelings, but still, um, that no way they're gonna be laws very quickly to protect uh, each individual. So that means every other company or individuals need to have some moral code. Right. Um, you can use the information. You can find the insight. You can leverage it to to make profit, but. Mm-hmm. You cannot hurt anybody else. Sure, sure. But uh, it's Wi-Fi nine, and yeah. Just tell me how you feel about this. So, I think everyone's, you know, reflexive reaction when they're when they're having this conversation is, you know, like you said, when you have a pop up that was from a website you visited several days ago, and it, now it's super relevant. They're trying to get you back and for yeah. you to buy the whatever it is. You're, I think, the instinctive reaction is to be like, hey, you know, like <laughs> back you off. Know? <laughs> you, you know, you kind of follow me a little too closely. But I think, again, once you maybe cross that hurdle, at least for me, I think, actually, I, I kind of want more specificity when it comes to what my 
attention and my mental bandwidth is being exposed to, right? Because there's so much out there. Am I really that concerned that things that I could potentially be interested in are you know, constantly being put in front of me? End of the day, I think it's everybody's responsibility to choose what they want and they don't want. I could see a banner ad for microphones a thousand times. I'm not going to buy it because I don't want to. It might be a bit annoying and there's, there's ways around that, like blockers or whatever. But I think... You know, I think you have to balance the kind of the scary aspect of what new technology is able to do in terms of, you know, track things and customize for you with kind of the, the you know, the, the good side of that and that, well, hopefully I'll be exposed to less shit that I'm not interested in and more stuff that I could potentially be interested in. And if that means that you're tracking my Google searches, all that kind of stuff to find that information, again, yes, my, my instinctive reaction is that's a bit weird, but, I, you know, if if you really put it in the context of how much we all are out there, and at the end of the day, our you know it's our responsibility and our decision to to determine what we actually engage in or buy or follow or whatever, is it really that big of a deal? I mean, I I, I, I think, think I'm, I agree with you in certain levels. <clears throat> I think technology is always good. Mm. It's good, <laughs> really, um, technology is always good. Well, it's certainly not going to stop. That's uh, for sure. As long as the people using them has good intentions right. and use the good ways. Uh, I will make examples. So, for example, in in YouTube, you will see those banner ads before you watch a video. You have a 15-second video to watch, and now it pops 15-second advertisement. Mm. It's really pissed you off. But in YouTube, you can click just skip because I don't like this advertisement. If I watch this, I will hate this brand. Mm-hmm. But in all other Chinese video websites, they don't have this. They will force me to watch the whole. Right. Now it's like 60 seconds <laughs> advertisement that forced me to hate the full brand. Right. <laughs> I think that's not smart. Right. It's not the technology It's making the mistake. It's uh, the people. Right. I, I agree totally. And it's interesting how all those different approaches and applications of new technologies are changing the way that people are impacted by brands. Like you said, you know, if, if someone, a lot of these, you know, let's say YouTube, they'll try to cater a type of uh, commercial or ad before a video based on your viewing history or whatever. And if you don't like it, you can skip it most of the time, although that's also changing a little bit, I've noticed. Um, but it's, you know, it's such a new kind of approach to marketing and advertising that I think the industry, and, and Ben, you can speak to this in a second, it seems to be in a, in a, right now seems to be a tremendous time of change in this industry because of the infusion of so many different applications of technology that I think maybe people are still scrambling to figure out what works. Because like you said, you know, okay, it's great that, you know, if a Yuku channel has a billion views and blah, 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 blah. But if I'm adversely affecting my target market, you know, by advertising or by shoving these advertisements down their throat or not delivering them in the right way or, you know, whatever your experience and many others was, then, you know, that, that perhaps is a, is a bad application of that technology exactly. and not a good approach, you know, from a brand or an agency perspective. So they're just, and wildfire is a great example of this is because it's such a innovative technology, but not only just a technology, a whole approach to, you know, to this industry. Um, and obviously seems like a very, you know, you know, it seems like it's, it's successful, but it seems like a very thought out and, and well-delivered approach, but there's so many out there. It's, it's, interesting to see the kind of interplay between them all and which ones will emerge as, as kind of the most effective and the most accepted by by the consumers. Um, so after that long-winded spiel, Ben, you want to tell us what you uh, feel about it all? <laughs> I don't know if I have anything new to add. I mean, I think, um, I, think I agree with you. I, I feel 
um, you know, and, and most most of the time I feel empowered by the fact that uh, in, that I have you know custom content that that is retargeting things remind me that uh, I needed to buy um, some some new deodorant next time time I go back to the states because I've forgotten that I should buy it in China and um, reminds me when I'm on Amazon. I mean, the whole kind of the the native advertising movement I think has a lot of um, hope. But um, it is interesting that it's still being kind of measured in, in the wrong way. I think we're still looking at how can we interrupt people's normal routines to throw something in front of them um, so that we score their eyeballs. Right. And you, and, and you still, I mean, you still look at publisher sites where they're still forcing you to, um, you know, uh, they're still forcing you to reload the page 20 times to see top 10 lists. Um, and you have these content distribution services that are. I had that problem to... just yesterday. I had to, I had to say that you brought it up. So yeah. go ahead. <laughs> no, it's super frustrating. <laughs> had a slow internet connection here, and I, I'm gonna admit, and you're gonna think less of me for this, but for some reason Miley Cyrus, her whole debacle just fascinates me, right? <laughs> so when I see when I see content that's Miley, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll click on that. Yes. And then I click you on should, it, and it, instead yeah. of a one-page list that you can scroll. It's a you have to reload ten different pages to see the list, and in China, you know, sometimes the internet's a bit wonky, and it was super slow. And I think I got to the second page. I was like, "Sorry, Miley, you're just you're not <laughs> worth the time, babe." Yeah. So, so <laughs> it's my example. Exactly. Hardship. Yeah. So you you're losing trust in all of this content. Right. And um, we're just running in circles. And uh, like you said before, you can't trust the kind of uh, I think brands have a hard time trusting they're getting impact from their media buys because you don't know like what what. Where's your your where's your content? Where your ads going to appear next to? Um, is there do consumers actually trust that format? Is there anything there? So, but but I still feel like there's a tremendous amount of potential because, um, you know, I'm kind of this like uh, I you know I grew up in in the '80s, early '80s, and um, you know, uh, watching Blade Runner and uh, um, reading like William Gibson novels, and I have a lot of hope for. Um, for some future where there will be the right type of government regulation, um, that, that we'll have some kind of uh, equitable environment where uh, consumers will still be able to control conversations. Platforms will learn to work together so things will kind of fall apart and uh, or the, you know it'll be easier for us to access. Um, things like Google Glass won't be uh, just this ugly piece of plastic on your face. It'll mm-hmm. be you know, something that's more integrated with our experience. And I think it all comes down to what I really enjoy about working with, with the Okina software company is about the user experience. Right. Um, and that's what it's all about. So I think if you can put something compelling in front of someone at the right point in time, and that's what we're trying to do, and you're not disrupting them, um, and you're not just part of some big media machine where you're just trying to sell uh, as many impressions as, as possible, but it's actually some contact that's, that's interesting, um, that, then, uh, then I think that's, that's the best way to sell a product. Right. Um, and I think that companies in the U.S. are a little bit um, better at doing this than in, than in China, mm-hmm. um, and that makes uh, the market. Uh, I, th- I think we're kind of riding the wave, maybe a little bit behind it, but I think that's kind of the hope for the future of our company is to be able to say, you know, this is what people are talking about, and we can we can get them exposed to uh, messages in a very like easy organic fashion that that we're not. Uh, forcing them or stopping their routine or, right. or pissing them I off. I mean, it seems like a much less abrasive approach than watch this ad for two minutes before the one-and-a-half-minute video you were trying to watch, right, or, so, or something like that. Yeah, and do you even do that, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, I mean, in general, I mean, can we not agree that 
I mean, just over the last 10 years, privacy has, I don't want to say dissolved because I'm not, again, I'm not necessarily saying it's a, it's a terrible thing, but mm. you know, the, the connectedness yeah. that technology brings is obviously breaking down barriers and bringing down walls all over the place. So should we just presume that the future is going to be open, transparent, and you know, some people will take that information and do great things with it, and other people might do questionable things with it, but you know, there's, that's just the way it's going to go. I mean, that's no secret. I actually approached by a friend uh, working for a bank. They want also to also do some big data, um, data mining applications or, or projects. You can think about that. Bank has everything of me. He knows where I live, where I purchase, where my parents live, where my parents purchase, mm -hmm. <laughs> so everything. So yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think people would be very wise and practical to assume that anything they do is being documented. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, so so be I careful. Mean, yeah, I mean, not just like on your browser, but you have a phone that had, I mean, there's a lot of location services on your phone. There's cameras everywhere. I mean, not to be not to get like, uh, you know, um, paranoid, but it's. Everything is about data now. Right, exactly. And um, everyone and hears big data all the time, and everyone knows, you know, how how you know the data of everything is is being yeah. held in different places, and everything has a digital record. And hopefully, they never access my uh, WeChat threads with my good mates. The comedy in there is sometimes a little bit <laughs> over the top, but uh, yeah, let's, let's hope well, they you, stay you out saw of the, the photographs from Zuckerberg's conversations back in uh, no. when he was in college. Yeah. No. <laughs> Google the Zuckerberg as well as the um, his name the founder of Snapchat. Um, there's some people who have basic I guess were mates of his that, that shared screenshots of the conversations they had and um, they're damning. Wasn't great press. <laughs> <laughs> like, just check it out. Okay. Yeah. Um, so again, another thing I've uh, along these same lines I, I I can't not ask you guys. I've asked it to everyone who who came in on the show. Obviously, we're we're in China and and. You know, and again, I could I could talk for a long time about the the dynamic here and and potentially why it's not as bad as people you know might usually think in the West and stuff like that. But obviously, there is overt uh, censorship on on you know Western uh, media things for sure, but media in general. Um, and again, you know, I often question: is the is the devil you know better than the devil you don't know? Is something that's overt, you know? almost more forthcoming than something that's a little more sub you know a little uh, more behind the scenes which may be the case in, in in western countries as we're seeing with a lot of things going on these days but you know what what has your guys experience been with uh you know the state of censorship in china i mean is it something you guys confront is it i mean is it a problem for you guys or not really i i don't think so um so I, I think our government has a, it's different. Right. I will just say it that way. Um, I have been also a lot of Western uh, Western countries. They also control this and that. Right. But is, is it the case where you guys try to do things and then you're informed that, you know, maybe you try a different way? Or, I mean, do you have to keep relationships with stuff? I mean, we were speaking with uh, with um, Alex from Alex Duncan from KWO and, and he was saying two things. First, you know, his, their company's biggest relationship builders are with people like Sinewebo and stuff like that, of course, because yeah. those are their, their media partners. Yeah. But, you know, he was saying, listen, you go to Canada, you go to Australia, you go to the UK, you know, it's not, it's not always, it shouldn't always be considered, uh, you know, a dirty thing 
to have relationships with the people that you're doing business with. You know, maybe in, in China, because up till now, the context of those relationships might be different than they are in the <laughs> West. In the West, you might go to a nice, uh, nice restaurant and, and, and speak with whomever you need to speak to to make the operation of your business easier. Whereas maybe in China, it's KTV rooms and late nights and cigarettes and beer. You know, maybe, maybe it's just the context that's different here. But I mean, do you, based on the work that you guys do, is it even really a consideration for you, or can you just basically operate as you wish and and mind your p's and q's and get by that way? I think I think we do, but I need to explain how this this happened as a history. So um, back to seventies, last century. So all the Chinese uh, culture is like uh, I'm. Uh, I'm a good party number, a member. Right, right. I'm a good person. I help everybody. I don't care about uh, money. Right. I'm, I'm spiritually good. Then after the innovation period coming in, in 1980s, the, it's totally changed because the previous um, period of time is so strong, so surprised. Right. Then everyone is just turned directly from black to white. Mm-hmm. It's like I only care about money. Right. I don't care about anybody else. I don't help anybody else. I build a relationship. And I, I bribe you. I give you money, you give me something. This kind of relationship. So when it's another 30 years goes by, since back to balance, and people starting to treat each other, I mean, sincerely or fairly, then we look back, it's like all those, what we call guanxi or relationship, right. 20 years ago, it's more or less too much money oriented. Mm-hmm. So that's why when people talk about a relationship, they feel a little bit guilty. But I think that would be be over in the next few years. Right. And there's been a concerted effort in the media and by the government. And, you know, that's at least been what's been promoted in, in that there's been some high profile cases of, you know, that being identified. And obviously the government is trying to, you know, turn that around or at least, you know, show that they're, they're trying to fix that, that yeah. issue. Um, and, and like you said, I think it's a good point that whereas perhaps in the past it was all about money and gifts and all this kind of stuff, where maybe it's going towards a more normal thing where it's, like we said, in other cultures where, you know, you can sit down with, uh, you know, the mayor or you can sit down with your representative officials, tell them what you're trying to do yep. and, and hear from them. Like, what can we do? What can't we do? What's the framework? What's, you know, what would you guys prohibit us from doing or what can you give us a hand on? I mean, again, instinctively you're like eh, it seems a little bit off but it's just it's really a part of business and it's and and you know i think in a lot of cases it's not it's not a shady thing to to un- try to understand the the field that you're playing on you know and i think that's maybe that's a lot to do with it so i guess to wrap up that question for you guys it's not a major concern i mean it's just something not not a concern, not a major, you know, time consumer for you guys. You just you, you understand the framework you're working under, and you stick to that. And as a result, not many problems or issues. Totally, totally. Yeah. And by the yeah, way, I think that's a fair. Summary. By the way, Shanghai is, I think, the most advanced city in China for <clears throat> on this aspect. Right. So you more kind of open, less and transparent. Right. 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 Okay. Yeah. Um, so. Luca, I want to ask you uh, something. I know Ben's been quiet for a bit, but we had Tony Gu on uh, last week on the show, and he uh, organizes a, a meetup called Drink Entrepreneurs. And mm-hmm. among other things that he was saying, uh, he, you know, he was we were talking about the, the startup community and the tech community, the foreign uh, startup and tech community here and the people involved in it versus the domestic. Obviously, you are local Chinese. And you've mm-hmm. been involved 
with Wildfire for seven or seven eight years, years. Yep. Um, and you're working, you know, with Ben and other other foreigners in the company. To you, I mean, do you have any insight on the differences between like foreign tech startups here in China and you know local ones? Because mm-hmm. we all know the big local ones, but mm-hmm. surely there's a lot of smaller scale ones, you know, by very talented and hardworking entrepreneurs on the local side. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, do the communities mix? If not, you know, can they? And what do you see as the main differences maybe between, I'm sure you have some friends that work in domestic startups and tech companies work uh, as opposed to working with, you know, foreign founded uh, tech and startup company. I would say the startups are quite similar to each other. The staff? Yeah, yeah. Um, the startups. The companies, oh, startups, okay. The companies are quite similar to each other. And uh, they share almost the same, at, at least the, all the companies I see, no matter it's uh, from local or from outside China, they share almost the same culture, the open, transparent, help each other, team playing, um, passion, um, everything like that. And uh, But the people are quite different, I would say. Mm. Um, uh, Western or foreigner technology people and it's totally different from the Chinese ones. So that's a reason I think, I, I'm not sure it's correct, I think the, the essential reason is the Chinese guys, tech guys, they have much, much more pressure, stress on their lives. Mm-hmm. They're asked to marry before 30 years old. By the way, I'm married, <laughs> <laughs> which is totally weird <laughs> in, in the startup company outside China. If it's. And but uh, not marry being married is not totally weird. Just, <laughs> right? So you need to uh, get married before thirty years old. Right, right. You need uh, a lot of societal uh, pressures and obligations. Yeah, on them, you right? buy an apartment, which is like a million uh, RMB, right? Uh, which is a lot of money. So that means even though you have passion, you have some what you could dream or whatever goals mm-hmm. in your life you have to bend over to some of this right. certain kind of level. Yep. So you cannot just say, I like this, I love this, I will do this. Right. So when you treat them in the same company, um, they go a little bit different. For example, they were more cares about their, their own value, they care about their package, the life of their family. Uh, they care less about the dream, they care less about... Uh, it's if this work is interesting or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And actually, Tony was kind of echoing similar sentiment. And, and, and one of the things he identified, I, I asked him for some advice and, and maybe if he could speak to them directly, what he would say. And, you know, of course, there's, there's those obligations that you mentioned, whereas most of the foreigners that, that move to China, they move, you know, largely because they are free of obligations. You're able to move to a foreign country because you don't have those things tethering you to your home country. So already they're on a, in a more open, more, you know, free, able to do what they want sort of uh, footing. But Tony was saying, you know, also th- there's so much pressure on them, like like you were saying, in that, you know, there's obligations, there's expectations. And he was saying, you know, uh, failure is interpreted differently. You know, in, in the kind of foreign Western startup communities, failure is a good thing. You know, if you approach VCs and you've got two failed startups under your belt and you're on your third one, then they're going to be, you know, happy to see that because they'll, they'll know you've been through certain processes before and you might be better equipped to handle them this time. Um, and, and in general, you know, 
initiating ideas and then and then failing and then getting more people involved and attracting more more people to your ideas is considered a good thing whereas you know in China we have the the kind of saving face culture that that exists here and Tony was saying you know if if people have an idea and they want to do something maybe a reason why they don't kind of interact with the community that's beginning to develop here in Shanghai is because you know they're a little bit apprehensive about how it might be interpreted and if they do give it a shot and if it fails what that means for their family relationships their peer groups and all that kind of stuff so yeah i mean i think you guys are pretty I much think, saying a similar yeah, thing yeah i think it has a point yeah and do you do you see that changing at all are there more local i mean your friends or people you know more local chinese entering into the kind of global startup tech community or What's the dynamic? It's a uh, getting more and more. Actually, what's changing? It's more and more Chinese people, Chinese young guys. They go to school, university, uh, overseas, and then come back. And mm-hmm. They bring in those kind of uh, new thinking, new right, thoughts. Right. So it's okay to fail. We need to be passionate, open. We do everything we w- we want. So that's changed a little bit, but the the cultural base is not. Mm-hmm. So people. Even today, the young guys still measured by uh, salaries or the success in company. Right. Not just by himself, also by his girlfriend, his wife, his right. parents, which is not going to change very quickly. Sure, sure. So, the, so a lot of you know maybe the community is beginning to change because a lot of uh, local Chinese are coming back from Western education, and not only are they taking the technical know-how that they acquired there, but they're also getting a cultural. Understanding and a broadening of of their cultural understanding, bringing it back, which maybe makes it, you know, more likely that they might engage in 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 the community here. Notwithstanding, of course, the family and girlfriend and all that sort of pressure is not going to go away. But maybe they're thinking about other uh, other routes more. Exactly. Um, so, just to finish up on uh, wildfire, and then we're going to close out the show with a few uh, a few fun questions. What uh, Ben, where's wildfire at now? I mean. Uh, I think you guys closed uh, around in November of last year. Is that right? Yeah, that's two, right. two million bucks um, mm-hmm. from a VC. What are you guys going to do with that? What's your plans for the future? And uh, give me the rundown. Yeah, no, thanks. Um, yeah, it's a very exciting time for us. So yes, we closed um, our second institutional round from a fund called Hera Capital Ventures, and um, the purpose of that fund really is to build out the product and our sales team. Um, So over the last six months, we've really been focusing on kind of putting um, some. I mean, the product will never be done. A beautiful right. painting is never finished. Right. But um, some some of the finishing touches that we wanted to do before we do a big go to market, um, and actually we we will be doing a rebranding over the next couple months, mm-hmm. um, and we plan to expand. Uh, we do have some projects in Southeast Asia, but we're going to be looking more internationally over this year. So.、Um, Again, it's kind of cementing around the the insight product and the social commerce, social influence product, and then trying to kind of get beyond the Great Firewall. Will China remain the the base and the core business for Wildfire, or yeah, for the foreseeable future, for sure. Yeah, I mean, because it certainly seems for the model that you guys provide and what we've been discussing today. I mean, so many people are eager to in China eager to in China it has to be. There's such an emphasis placed on education, especially for new brands and multinational ch- com-、uh, companies trying to enter, because a lot of the, the the target market have never even seen their brands before, let alone tried them、mm. or been exposed to them. So,、yeah. whether you go into grocery stores here or malls or whatever, you know, getting people to try things is a huge aspect, and obviously that's what you guys are are trying to do or part of it. So, and, and not to mention there's 1.3 billion people here, so you've got a lot of a lot of people to reach. 
Um, but so moving forward, you're going to be going throughout Asia or everywhere? Yeah, so for this year, we're, we're really still focused on China and Asia. Next year, we'll be looking towards Europe and the U.S., and we'll be flying under the banner of ACT Social okay, um, rather than Wildfire. Wildfire actually is, back in 2008, there were, um, the space was a little bit uh, less busy than it is today, but now there's about 18 companies, uh, social companies internationally named Wildfire. Oh, really? Um, and uh, I think we're pretty solid in China and Singapore, but if... If we're going to start working on it, like a strong inbound marketing campaign and sales, we need to have a name that's that's distinctive. Right. Um, and it's it's I think Act Social also um, you know has this this feeling of action and it has the word social in it. Um, wildfire sometimes, especially in the Chinese translation, can be perceived as a negative thing. Uh, right. And and with a lot of uh, uh, this concern about social media crises. Um, there's been many brands who have lost millions, mm. uh, billions in some cases of revenue over the last couple of years. Um, it really just cements the, the direction that we're going in. And it also sends a message to our team, which is important. Is there any way you could use your social listening platform or software or program to develop a new name? Like, could you get on there <laughs> or even have some fun with it? Can you get on there and see what people are talking about? Like, oh, this name really sticks. We should go with it. I mean, I'm taking, nice I'm taking notes right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice idea. Um, and just real quickly, we're, we're coming up to the end of the show, but a lot of people out there, we talk about raising capital on this show a lot with people that are in early stages of startups. Can you just give us, you know, I know it's a long process and often mm. very difficult. Can you give us kind of a, you know, an insight into what it's like, you know, that whole process, how many people you have to approach? And then now that you've done it, is it like a huge weight off your shoulders and you got a bunch of money you're just going to, you know, iterate and develop and, and keep working hard? Yeah, well, I think in social marketing in Asia, I mean, it's it's, huge, it's a very, very hot industry. Um, um, the, the issue, I think, is that there's a lot of angel investors um, but there is there is a gap in between kind of the early to, to mid to late stage. So um, it, it's not like you're in Silicon Valley and there's a lot of people who are willing to, uh, you know, invest in a bit of IP and maybe five or six uh, customers. You really have to have a solid revenue stream here before you're going to go to um, anything bigger than a million. Right. Uh, having said that, um, I, I think the angel uh, investor community is very active. Uh, you just have to accept that when you start a company, it's going to be a full-time job mm. raising money. Yeah. And it's going to be a little bit more difficult. Um, you're not going to be, the, I think, in social or digital, it's going to be very difficult after the first year to go to a large uh, VC and get a, a $10 million or $15 million. Right, million, right. Uh, like we've seen some companies do in the U.S. So, I, you know, if I were to give advice based on our limited experience, it would be um, don't do it alone. Find a partner. Find someone um, who is is strong in finance, corp sec secretarial uh, networking, um, and who can really take responsibility for that so you can build the product out. Otherwise, you will just not sleep. And right. uh, it's, we've, we had some, some tough times in the first year or so, just uh, having enough energy to manage the financing and to keep the, building the company at the right. same time. And, and do you approach, and what was the response from domestic angels and VCs versus you know maybe foreign VCs that have, have offices here and, and things like that? I mean, is there any interest from domestic, uh, like, you know, Chinese angels and VCs in foreign funded companies? Or do you primarily look Singapore, Hong Kong and outside for people that have a more, you know, global and whatever perspective? I think it's changed a lot in the last couple of years. Um, there's when we started, there were not uh, the Remy B funds that are around. Uh, I think angels were a little bit less interested. There was no um, early stage debt, mm -hmm. which there is now. Um, 
but uh, you know, I hate to say this, but I still think that 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 funds, both foreign and domestic, um, are a little bit less willing to invest in a company with two two foreign guys as founders, right? Um, unless you have really strong traction yeah. in the beginning. And that, that's a challenge. Yeah. No, there's, I mean, there's, yeah. you see that in many different areas, but there's obviously still a trust issue. And, ob- and you know, their comfort in dealing with someone who has that cultural difference with them is, is a significant factor anywhere you go. Um, but it's something that, you know, we've had people on the show before encounter that as well. Um, okay. So, guys, a couple questions before I let you go. First of all, Shanghai is a very crazy city. You guys are always in the office. You're doing the hard work. You're, you know, all hours. Uh, trying to make this thing a reality and push it forward and grow the business. What do each of you do to relax in, in Shanghai? I mean, there's plenty of different options and m- many people go different ways. Uh, Lukai, why don't we start with you? What do you do to relax? I actually very seldom go outside home. I, I play video games. Uh-huh. I play a lot of video games. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, Unlike uh, every other engineer on <laughs> I do, I do go out for food, Chinese food, right. um, not just Chinese food, um, food in Shanghai is really good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Japanese food, Chinese food. So, uh, so what, vi- what video game are you playing, just to make it interesting for the, the other vi- gamers out there? Uh, this week I'm playing Heath of Stone, so just, I will keep you updated. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea what that is, but I'm sure some people do. <laughs> and, and Ben, what about you? How do you, how do you relax and uh, release in this city? Yeah, I mean, um, I love video games as well. I wish I were more avid. But for me, it's I, I just don't have the time. It's like pretty much like uh, it's um, a black hole for time. I mean, like maybe once a year, I'll go on IGN and if there's something that's got like a ten, I'll play it for like a week straight, and then I won't play it for like another six months. Um, for me, I'm there's two things. One, I'm extremely opportunistic about my friends' plans, so I I don't really do anything interesting on my own. I wait for my friends to come up with interesting things. Yeah, and then I jump on that when I see right. opportunity. Um, you just go through. I'm like, no, no, no. Exactly. Okay, I'll go I'm there. like, yeah, yeah. You want to hang out? Got to bring something. Into- <laughs> no. Um, so, I mean, I, I run a lot just because it's easy. You can just leave the office. Uh, my home is just like five minutes across the street. So, at lunch, I can just go for a run and come back. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I don't really like running, it just uh, frees my my brain up a bit. The biggest thing is leaving Shanghai. Right. I take any opportunity I can get <laughs> to leave Shanghai. Where do you go? Just so, anywhere? Hong Kong, Singapore, when, wherever? When the weather's good, um, Mogenshan. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I have some friends. We have motorbikes. We'll just get on the road early Sunday morning, just straight, go straight out in the mountains and just drive. Um, if I don't have enough time to plan. Otherwise, go to Hong Kong. I was in Beijing like a month ago. The weather was off the hook. It I heard just, it was great. It was yeah. stunning. Um, so for me, I think... Yeah, there's things going on the day to day that uh, and, and drinking and watching um, Game of Thrones is probably not very therapeutic <laughs> um, <clears throat> that I do. But I think the biggest thing to relax is just to get out of the context of, of this very, very fast paced, very anxiety inducing city. Right. Um, and just, you know, go to Hong Kong, uh, even for the weekend. I, I was there last week and I had some friends up in the new ter- territories. We stayed at a cottage, went hiking. Um, and, you know, just jump on the plane and come back. Right. Um, And last one, one piece of advice for the the people listening out there, maybe they're budding entrepreneurs, maybe they already have a startup that they're running. What advice would be your number one piece to to give them to help them on the way to make things easier here in China, uh, you know, specifically? But what would you tell them to, uh, from something that you've learned on your your journey? Um, I think the most important thing is to not do it alone. And ideally, I would, with China, I would find... I would do it with someone that uh, I have a strong 
level of trust with, and I would also try to find a Chinese partner, which right. is what, what we did. I know it's a bit cliche. I mean, VCs say team is most important, and everyone says team is most important. But having been through this, if I if I didn't have Liu Kai and if I didn't uh, start it with with Christoph, I, I just wouldn't have survived. Right. I mean, there's just too much stuff, and uh, the sell the sales process takes so much longer um, that you just don't have the time in the day. Right. I, I think to start up. So practical advice. Yeah. Yeah. And Liu Kai, for you, I mean, maybe to the you know for budding domestic Chinese entrepreneurs, what do you have any advice based on your experience that you, you can give them a hand with? Get a foreigner partner. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so get a get a Chinese partner, get a foreign partner. Uh, I see. I, I should rephrase it. Uh, get a different partner than yourself. Right. Yeah, Someone with I different skills, maybe a different cultural understanding, different background, personality even. Some, okay. Yeah. Cool. So. Um, guys, where can people get a hold of Wildfire if they want to get in touch with you guys or follow you guys? What's the best way to do so? Um, yeah, just uh, visit us at our office. We're on uh, Chongping Road. Uh, next to uh, Ankan Green on Shisujo Road. Um, stop by any time. We have, we have a great office. We have a lounge. You can have a coffee with us. Um, go to wildfire.asia or actsocial.com if you want to call us up. Okay, so the Act um, Social site is, is live. It's, yeah, yeah, it's live. Cool. Um, LinkedIn, find us on LinkedIn. Yeah, yep. it's a, in this day and age, it's very easy to get a hold of us. Cool. Otherwise, um, yeah, we're spending a lot of time on Kaiba on, on Wooding Road near our office. So. <laughs> the, the bar, right? That's right. Nice. It's a popular spot for uh, startup people, I hear. Um, and we are, of course, Tech in Shanghai. You can uh, hit us up on Twitter, at Tech in Shanghai. We've got a website coming down the pipe, so we'll let you know when that's live. And uh, thank you guys for listening. We'll see you all next time. And guys, thanks for coming on the show. Thank, thank you, you so much. Cheers. See you guys. Thanks for listening to the Tech in Shanghai podcast. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Tech in Shanghai for everything tech from Shanghai and China. See you next time.